Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I design tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I also design tabletop role-playing games and just basically put the the final touches on Code Warriors. The only thing that's left to do is slot in the last artwork, which is being worked on. It's done otherwise, which is very, very exciting. I did that earlier today. Good job. Woohoo. Take the wins where you can get them. And we are here with a guest, and it's Evan. Hello, Evan. Hi, I'm Evan. I, um, Evan Torner. I uh, am involved with various organizing and designing of LARPs and, and RPGs. I can go into the background of that, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm really happy to dive into today's topic. Yeah. What is our topic for today? Our GMing topic, Craig? Oh, GMing for first timers. And we had a discussion before we started recording that the whole podcast is kind of about GMing for first timers. When you think of it in terms of like ideas and rule and information and advice and everything for first time GMs. But what we mean is GMing for first time players, like um, whether you are a first time or, or, you know, new GM or whether you are a, a veteran GM who are, you know, you suddenly one way or the other, you end up with some players or one player who's brand new to the whole thing and um, things that you can do as a GM, ways you can perhaps adjust how you do things a little bit, conversations you can have, that sort of thing with a new player to kind of help them figure out this whole role playing game thing. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this because I have been thinking about this a lot, actually. GMing and our design topic is going to be designing for first-time players, too. (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot recently, so I'm excited to dig into it. Yeah, Evan, what do you you think? I I think one backdrop of this is like the millions of people who've been watching Stranger Things and, and of that, a subsection have all been getting into Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, yeah. You know our uh, campus Dungeons and Dragons club, and and, and they, they they accept tabletop RPGs, but they're really a Dungeons and Dragons club, and they're they're very adamant about that. And uh, they have you know almost six hundred people in their Discord, and and people all looking for games, and a lot of them, you know, people who are looking for games. I mean, they just want to try this thing out that they saw in Stranger Things. So I think we're in a moment where there are a lot of first timers or people who are, you know, just kind of getting their their feet wet. And uh, it's exciting to have so much interest to not feel like you're, you know, doing some weird marginalized thing in a corner and that, you know, that 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 is only for geeks, but but rather, you know, this is for everybody. And and of course, then I think this broaches the question of who is a first timer, and uh, you know your answer to that question actually tells me a lot more about you than it does about what we you know uh, a, a real living thing that we can point to. That's a really good point. Like, who is a first timer? Because for me, I think of because everyone has been a first timer, like gamer. Everyone has done it for the first time. No one just skips over and is suddenly experienced, but I'm a teacher and I think about some of my students and like the age when I started getting into playing role-playing games, I was like 13 maybe. And that's the age I see a lot of young people start getting into D&D. Like that's really the age where you can play around a little bit more, maybe a little bit more of a mature focus, like actual focus, not like thematic wise. And so when I picture a first time player, I'm thinking of a middle schooler or a high schooler playing for the first time 
with their friends, maybe with some friends who have played before, or maybe they're getting into it because of an older sibling or a parent or because of Stranger Things, because a lot of them are watching Stranger Things. My old school, we started a tabletop game club and it, you know, it was really a, a D&D club because that's what the kids wanted to play. You've got to play the games that your audience would have played. And it has expanded over the last couple of years. And keep in mind, this is with a year and a half long hiatus because of the pandemic. The person I used to run it with texted me and said that it has expanded to like three different classrooms now. And they have like 50 kids coming every week. It's wild how many new players are getting into the hobby. And it's great. It's great for everybody. I found myself thinking about like the idea of, right, of the first timer, first time role-playing game player. Well, like, what does that mean? And, you know, in, in a strict literal interpretation, you can say it's like the first time you sat down at a table or online with a bunch of people and you had a book that had some rules and a world and a story outline of how, kind of what the stories are about. And you maybe you, there were some dice or mechanics to deal with. And you had like a, some sort of record keeping a character sheet or something akin to that. That's your first time as a, as a role-playing gamer, but your first time as a role player was much, much earlier than that yes. because we have all as children played pretend. It's something that every kid does. It's how you explore the world around you. It's how you figure out who you are. Um, you try on different hats. You try on, you, you, you be different things, be different people, you know, experience in your imagination what that is. So I think it, it's useful as a GM when, if you've got new players is to, you can always fall back to that and compare to that. At least there's a frame of reference. Like this is a game where you get to play pretend just like you did many, many, many hours when you were younger um, or perhaps still do <laughs> no judgment at all. And, and uh, you know, people that are involved in theater stuff or, you know, any, any of that sort of thing, same deal. And it's just, you know, I remember playing you know, we call it just playing cops and robbers or playing war, you know, like it's like little boys playing, right? Like running around with like a stick that was shaped like a gun and pew, 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 you know, pow, pow, you're dead. No, I'm not. You missed, you know, yeah. like, well, now there's a rule <laughs> that tells me whether or not I missed. So like, I've got to roll a die or flip a card or spend a point and, and, you know, making that connective tissue happen, making, making, finding that common DNA between the two um, can do a lot to help um, somebody who's playing for the first time. And you can connect. You can connect it to other types of games as well. Um, you know, you can connect it if the person's played board games before. They usually had, like, a board game often has a certain. You only have so many action. Only, only so many different things you can do. Like the, the game is set up. It's got this many actions. There's turn. There's you know phases that happen in this order. And you can talk about like what well what you know relate that to combat rounds and and how things take a certain order or the. Uh, 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 the game loop that some games you know, like rely heavily on, like uh, Blades in the Dark has a very specific loop of like, there are certain phases that take place to tell a story in the game and it all wraps around back on itself and allows you to start over um, with, with characters that like now the stakes have been, the stakes have been upped and the characters have changed and so forth. And you can, you can build off of all of those things. Yeah. I mean, everyone has experience playing like role playing to different and some, some of your players, your new quote unquote new players might also have, already experienced kind of doing the actual role play. I started role playing on, on Neopets forums when I was like 10. Uh, <laughs> so everyone has the experience. Evan, when did you first, when were you a first time player? I, I transitioned directly from action figure play to 
role-playing games. So it was about when I was about eight years old, uh, I had just moved to a new town and it was a, you know, sort of mysterious thing that I picked off a shelf, you know, Marvel superheroes advanced set, the TSR from the late eighties with the phase rip, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, right, right. Stats and, and um, my second game, I, I didn't understand it at all, <laughs> but I ran it for, for, for my friend, uh, people I wanted to get to know better. And it, was, it turned out to be a great way to get to know people better. And I think, you know, for, for, so for, for me, you know, it, it just seemed very natural, right? Okay. We can't play with action figures anymore. People are outgrowing that. So now we can use this other medium and it, it's no surprise that my current game is all very action figurey, right? we got like mm-hmm. 20 different action figure characters you are, and it, it's designed to simulate this, this uh, experience of sitting there, you know, with your figures on the floor and, and playing with them. That to me is, 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 is really the guts of the role-playing experience. I guess uh, for me, uh, game mastering for first timers is like three distinct situations. One is for kids or high school kids. Uh, when I say kids, it's like five-year-olds, right? Or eight-year-olds, which happens these days. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and that, that like in those very small children situations, I'm just trying to survive uh, as a game master, right? You know, I, I'm I'm in a. I, I, sorry, as a parent of two, no. I, I just I, you know my 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 goal is is no one no one has a meltdown, no one no one eats anything they shouldn't eat, no one yeah uh, you know and, and and again like once once you pass the threshold of eight ten things become a lot easier on on that front i don't have to be as as much of a you know a taskmaster and and you know sort of patrolling against uh base, basic malfunctions i would say <laughs> but uh once you hit the high school context that that also isn't necessarily smooth what, what usually um at a in a high school level you have radical player agenda problems so one player uh wants to follow the rules uh, one player wants to use the rules to fulfill a very specific personal fantasy, and one person is bored and doesn't want to play this at all, but is just do- going along for social reasons. Those are three entirely different player agendas, and you'll have them all at your table. I used to run Fiasco for for high school students, oh. and uh, oh, chaos. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it was really interesting because because I, they had their own sort of language that they were using, their own uh slang i'm not even saying oh you know i'm not even trying to exoticize what they're saying there were times where i couldn't understand things that they had said sure. and, and it mattered because i was trying to run a game of fiasco <laughs> so i'm like is, is that a scene ending statement or are we still in the middle of the scene and 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 certainly a lot of the enjoyment that they got out of that session was being able to to communicate in this code amongst themselves so it is very much a, a social experience then the other two groups I'm talking about would be I'm, t- I'm running for like um, artistic or queer folk or people who are often very uh, artsy or play minded, like are used to that kind of creative space, but haven't played a role playing game or or haven't played one for a while or something like that. Uh, that will that will be a, a, a experience. And that's one of the most delightful experiences, actually, because they already have all the tools and then you just give them the free space to do storytelling they need and then finally there's also the uh convention game mastering which mm. is uh, when you have first timers who are going there well you've already paid a ticket for a convention so like 
you're probably initiated into a number of different nerd subcultures. So there you're often just a first timer to the system and not to the role playing activity. But sometimes there are first timers who also come to conventions. And that's a real delight because then you're sort of like introducing them to what is a convention game in addition to that. And I actually really like being someone's first time ever yeah. in a convention game. I think that's a that's a that's a joy and, and a special pleasure. It's a, like a wonderful opportunity to be somebody's gateway into the hobby. Not to like be power trippy about it, but you get to shape a lot of their perspectives about what a game should be like. And I think that's why it's really important to prepare yourself, especially if you're going to run a game at a convention, like you were saying, Evan, or if you are planning to run games for first timers, to be really conscious of how what you are doing is going to set those expectations possibly for the rest of their gaming experience. And you don't want that gaming experience to be one game. You hopefully want to bring them into the hobby and show them something that they might be interested in continuing. Um, I think that your insights about high schoolers, <laughs> like the high school age kids, super spot on. I have, I have taught everywhere from seventh to 12th grade and the gamut of like the, the, the player agendas, definitely it. But like no matter what age group you're in, you said it yourself, you got into games as a way to get to know people and to meet people. And I think that, so understanding like where your players are coming from, getting all of that information, maybe even their level of experience within other types of games or other types of role play, but also what their agenda, what their social agenda is and how you can make it as social a game as possible. Because they're probably playing the game because they want to be social. Otherwise, they'd be playing a video game, maybe. So how, what, what can we do as game designers to, to, to bring the load off of the actual mechanics, I think, is the core problem. So they're not focused on the core mechanics, and they can really get to the fun part, which is the role play part, the social part. I've done something like this with um, even with veteran gamers in a new system, but I think it probably would work very well for new players um, because they're of course dealing with a new system, a new, a new pastime overall is, you know, the kind of slow exposure um, approach. I, I've compared it to going swimming in cold water <laughs> um, where like just the concept of it is, oh, that's daunting. It's going to be cold. Like there's going to be an unpleasantness. I'm not going to know what I, I've never done it before. It's, you know, I don't know what to expect, blah, blah, blah. Um, so you dip your toe in. So like the first session can be just, you know, simple. Don't, don't throw a ton of mechanics at them. Let them play the character, build out the world, like really put on a show, like be the GM that really kind of immerses them into the game and just give them maybe just the lightest touch of game mechanics. Just like we'll make a couple of rolls to determine something. Um, and that's, you know, then, okay, now they're, now they feel a little more confident. So they're going to walk out and, you know, up to their knees or their thighs. And they're going to be like, okay, second game, you know, like now we'll do like a little combat or a little action sequence or a, a, a chase or like a heist scenario or something that has like some stakes to it. Um, that's a more extended thing. Um, and then once they've kind of gotten used to that and they feel like, oh, this isn't so bad, I can handle this. I'm ready to dive in. And then, you know, like down, down the road, third, fourth session, that's where it's like, okay, now we can do a game where they've gotten comfortable with the system. They've gotten comfortable playing their character. They've gotten comfortable with the other players with you. Now we're going to, you know, you can do something like, you know, here's, here's what the game can really do, right? Like this mm -hmm. is like, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll 
ramp it all the way up. And then also assure them that just because I got you to this point with this, this session where we all of a sudden we're rolling a lot of dice and, and there's a lot of math and all this other stuff, make, make them realize like the game's not always like that. I just like slowly rolled you up to this, but we're going to, it's going to ebb and flow. There will be games that were like the first one. There will be games that are like this one and everything in between rather than uh, dumping them into um, a really heavy, heavy gamey experience um, right out of the gate, you know, start with the role play and the, and the, and the setting and the lore and the social aspect of things. In education, we call that scaffolding where you are building on their previous knowledge and the best point of previous knowledge we can assume they have is that they know how to play pretend. You're just adding stuff on. I think that's a, that's a good way. uh, uh, Like that's a really efficient strategy. I I think the um, most important duty of a game master is to listen and to keep time uh, as well as to be a fan of the player characters. Those are kind of the, the, the pillars is, is, you know, to be the, finally the person who says we're taking this much time to do X thing mm-hmm. and, and calling time. And, and you are a blessed person for keeping to time often um, in, in many respects, even if it seems restrictive, the, uh, listening aspect that was really important with first timers. There's kind of a, a couple of thresholds you're going to pass. One is you're going to pitch the premise and you're going to attach, you're going to hang a few mechanics on those premises, just like Craig says, just a few, the ones you're going to use maybe in this session. And, and you know, you have to gauge how long your session is. is it going to be two hours. Well, I'm going to use three mechanics. I'm not going to use more than that. I'm not going to introduce grenade scatter tables on, on, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do grenade scatter tables unless I think it's fun to do grenade scatter tables. So that's it's a very particular situation. The, the the next threshold is character creation or character introduction. Character creation when they're gonna sit down and uh, play the character. So it, in that transition moment between when I did the like premise introduction and the mechanics, I'm I'm, I'm listening. I'm like, are, are their eyes glazing over? Are they distracted? Am I? Are they still with me? Okay, we're we're gonna move into the characters now. Are they gonna create the characters? And this is where I'm listening some more. the The, the first segment, I'm 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 listening, especially for um, engagement. But the second part is where I'm where I'm look, I'm sniffing for those player agendas. Right. Mm-hmm. This person seems to want a very large sword. What does that tell me as a game master? This person is is, is literally naming their character Bill. And, you know, in, in complete contradiction to the whole fiction, are, are they not going to be in alignment with everybody else? Or are they kind of that person who wants to be funny in very specific circumstances, right? So I'm, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to all these cues that the first time players are sending me so that then we pass the next threshold, which is the what I call the play pause moment where all the characters are frozen and then you hit play. And and you think that they're going to go one way, and they and they they veer off into all these different directions. <laughs> that that's the moment where you're where, where you're, you're you're listening, which is to literally say what is their first action, and you want to give them a nice intro, maybe even padded cell kind mm. of experience in that first like ten minutes, where you can really gauge what what seems to be working for them. What kind of statements do they make? What are you know how, what? What are their interactions with, with with the fellow players? And I can make decisions then about my entire rest of the session from those sort of three benchmarks. Are they paying attention when I? If they're glazing over the mechanics, I'm not going to put too many mechanics in the game. If the characters don't, you know, the characters are are maybe contradicting some of the things that I'm 
already envisioning for the game, I'm going to adapt. I'm going to say, oh, it, it seems we're going to go in that direction. And then at the play pause mo- moment, if they pursue that direction, great. We've now agreed upon a direction that we're going to go in. And if all of those are radically different, it's, you, you, you're, you're getting mixed signals all over the place, then maybe you've got uh, players you're probably not going to play another session with. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, but cert- certainly, you know, uh, oftentimes with first-time players, it's an introduction to them as people as well. I'm often running for people I don't know. And, and it's rare that I'm introducing someone for the first time who, you know, whom I know very well. That's that's a different situation. But most of the time, it's I don't know you. We're playing a role-playing game together to get to know each other better and for entertainment purposes. And now we're going to have to go through some pretty uh, mind-numbing details. I, and if you're with me and we're, we're all doing this together, we'll have a great time. And if not, then I'm going to listen for the signals that will that, that that will tell me more about that. Sorry that was so long. No, no, I thought that was very <laughs> insightful. And I, I, I definitely think listening to your players, we talk about it all the time, like talk to your players, listen to your players. And like, that's the number one thing you're doing as a GM is being a communicator and a facilitator. I think, you know, it, it in, embedded in what you were saying too, is like, you know, with listening to them is like, and this is advice that just goes for games in general. And I think we've said it once or twice before, but it bears repeating is, you know, the, the questions that your players are asking you will tell you what they do and don't want what they what they are personally want as like for themselves personally what they want for the game as a whole what they kind of want for the group like if they're asking about like where the weapon shop is and whether i can get a big sword and whether i can get you know i want to use you know if they're if they're asking about where they can buy grenades it means they're ready for the grenade scatter table you know that means that that's what they they want that that's going to be fun for them so you can always pay attention to that sort of stuff I I think at the same time, your players are going to be listening to you and the number one thing that they're listening to you, maybe consciously, maybe uh, subconsciously, unconsciously, whatever the difference between those two are, I think, yeah, probably is that they're, they're really going to be looking for feedback that will determine their confidence level. I think that in my experience and probably in your two experience, although maybe you have something different is that the first kinds of questions that players ask are like, can I? questions they're they're really testing the waters they they don't want to make mistakes they they will see you as the authority unless you're a brand new gm too they're going to see you as the authority and it can be difficult to perform in front of someone else who has authority and if you're working with younger people it's difficult to perform among peers as well So there's going to be this confidence issue. So one of the things you should really strive to do for a new player is to really boost their confidence and make them feel special, make them feel like, yes, you are doing good. Giving them that positive feedback, smiles, nodding, all of that. And if you still get the, like the, can I questions, a good thing that I do with my students, like when, when they're, you know, they're testing stuff out, you can, don't be afraid to like, give them some narrow choices instead of just like, oh, what do you want to do? You can say, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this or something else? And if they're confident, they'll go for the something else maybe. Or maybe you've just framed that decision in a nice way. They're going to pick, oh, do you want to go down the, are you going to go down the left door? Or are you going to go down the right door? Or, and they'll say, ah, the left door. Even if that's like, they were, they were not so confident about it. But now you've narrowed it down. You've given them this decision as a confident decision that, that they can feel they're holding on to the handrails at that point. 
And I, I think that making them feel special and making them feel confident is the best way to get them to play more and come back later. This is this also brings us a little bit into the design discussion. I don't know when we want to broach that, but the uh, design discussion that you you sort of mentioned is agency and choice design, which is where the gates at which you kind of uh, then open it up to the players and say, okay, now I've established some things and it's your your turn to 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 contribute some things. Do I give you A and B options? Do I give you a range of options? Do I do I just sort of give you a situation and stare at you? Uh, and and there are probably a few things that I um, have predicted, but but uh, you know then 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 there's of course room for surprise. Eric Fatland always said, you know, a game design is just uh, predicting player behavior. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know you can you can you can gloss over that as much as you'd like but but ultimately when we sit down to write instructional texts or even do world building or something in the back of our mind we are thinking how are the players going to behave what are they going to do and and we're and we don't have open-ended uh answers in our mind we're always thinking no like they could do this they could do this do this which all would be genre appropriate it will fit they will not go and, and, and run off and get ice cream in my game. They won't, which is not genre appropriate, right? And that that kind of, of thinking is is really important then, especially when you're you're trying to introduce people uh who've never done role playing before or whatever, in you know, it, being very conscious of like who do I think is the ideal player and 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 how do I incentivize them to uh, do the behavior in as few steps as possible and also makes it very easy for the game master to do it as well. Well, Jess, I think Evan has chosen to go down the corridor on the right, and that corridor leads to our next topic. Yes. Um, so we're turning uh, to page why 16. Why don't you set us set us up officially for that and we'll we'll roll there. Yeah. Our design <laughs> topic is designing for new players. And I, I think that that, like you're right, it is predictive, totally predictive. And I am coming in as a game designer with all of my biases, all of my experience playing games, all of these tropes that are in my head. No one, I don't know anyone at least, is designing a game having never played one before. And that makes it, that's like the challenge, isn't it? I know what I would do as a player, but I've been playing games since I was 13. How, how can I design a book that is for not just the new player, but also for the experienced player without feeling like I'm talking down to the experienced player or overwhelming the new one. That's tough. Yeah. That's maybe the toughest thing that a game designer deals with is balancing the, we've talked about it before, balancing all the things that a game book is. It's, you know, it's introduce, introduction and setting and lore, building a world, it's um, teaching rules, it's a reference you know, and, and um, it's an, like instruction manual versus reference. Those are two different things, um, although they kind of work in tandem. And it's a few other things. And yeah, the I, I'm going to take a quick seg, uh, quick sidetrack into something that popped up in uh, the old Twitter discourse recently, which is, is the what is an RPG section actually necessary in RPGs today? And I will come down, I will come down hard line that it is absolutely necessary. It doesn't have to be long. But it is absolutely necessary because, yes, the idea of a role-playing game is fairly pervasive. We think, as gamers, ask 
uh, a thousand people and you'll have plenty of people who tell you they don't know what the hell you're talking about. But uh, more more than just like describing what a role playing game is in the most basic terms, you're in, in your game book, you're going to be describing kind of what your game is because different games play different ways. They expect different things. And while uh, I think the best argument for, you know, in favor of the what is an RPG section is to maybe title it, what is this RPG? And, and kind of think of think of it in that in that way. You can have like a short paragraph that tells tells people what an RPG is, but then get into what your RPG is, what this game is about. Because if you think about it, um, there are times when a role playing game completely broke the mold. It's happened about a dozen times, give or take, maybe in the history of role playing games. Let's we were just talking about Fiasco. Fiasco broke the mold. Fiasco absolutely needed a what how do you what is this game how do you play it what's it about kind of uh, description and i would venture to say that many games that are like fiasco or that have branched off of it and have iterated rules and and built things out in wow. different ways and done different ex explorations of that kind of a game um kind of need that as well because it, they're always kind of treading some new ground dread is the same way dread had to do that uh, powered by uh, ap apocalypse world kind of had to get the point across that this isn't about making checks and rolls this is about describing and and act you know a narrative first and you you keep talking until you get something that triggers a move you don't like it the thing that you describe triggers something else you don't decide to make a role and uh those types of things come into play so i think you you can set expectations for your <clears throat> game and even if it's a more traditional role-playing game or if it's more like your indie kind of story games that are geared that direction you can at least delineate Kind of what the expectations are for your particular game to talk about like what the game loop is like or to talk about you know can people expect there to be a lot of dice rolling or maybe not a lot or can people expect that um there's a lot of math or there's not you know setting that sort of thing up is useful i think the um twitter discourse is often among younger designers um not to dismiss them at all because i was going through the same kind of i would say celebration of ambiguity in my 20s teens and 20s where i'm like well, who needs all this shit right who needs all this this normative stuff when you can just break the mold and do whatever and especially and, today it's on the internet you want to learn what an rpg is you can look it up exactly it's at yeah. everybody's fingertips and 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 it's still i think older designers know you do have <laughs> to to frame a thing or else people will misinterpret it and uh and 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 having you know scars from things having been dramatically misinterpreted often then makes us a little more conservative and and think about how can we clearly present this to a variety of different audiences very quickly so people it's a it's a consent issue right you know can i consent to play this game and and one thing i think again from folks who um oh who design games like dread fiasco and and apocalypse world all of them more or less have a very strict idea of what the object of the game is and you have an object of a game and and then and then the uh, other tag is you might not get it because <laughs> right so you you know like the dread uh, uh object is to survive but you might not get it because you'll pull the tower or you'll you'll valiantly knock the tower over to save somebody uh apocalypse world you know you'll be a crazy deadly awesome cool whatever but you might not uh get that even even um you know even that far because the apocalypse is nasty and and you know the mc will make a hard move and and put you in a in a tight spot um 
and and so so all the these these games that I, I would say I very much admire uh, have a very clear object, which then is something people can understand from tag or from rock, paper, scissors or other games or play situations that have nothing to do with role playing games, but they all have an object and they all have rules. And if you start there, then then the activity can can work. If you have a what is a role playing game section, though, you can also use that as an opportunity to help orient your players, especially if they're just reading the book. You're not going to say that section aloud as a game master, but if they're reading the book, then they are again are consenting to go further with you or not even from that section i really think that the best thing that came out of that twitter discourse and like i said this is why this has been on my mind recently it's because of the whole what is an rpg discourse i think the the best conversation i had within that and i say that it's twitter i retweeted it or whatever it doesn't matter <laughs> that when you write the chapter what is an RPG? Your work is not done. You don't then just write the rest of the book the way you would have normally. Like you really want to make sure that you're integrating the rules and everything else within that book to make sure that the players understand not just like what they are doing, but maybe why this is a rule in the first place. Like it might be obvious to you why you would describe a role, like describe what you're doing and then roll or vice versa. That might seem obvious to you, but like. I have been just imagining, like, what if my grandma was playing this game? What if my grandma decided to buy my game and wanted to play? Because, oh, it's my granddaughter's game. How would she understand this as someone who is, like, so far removed from me in this experience? And making sure that you're integrating and thinking about that new player the entire time, really thinking about your audience. How might you change some of the, the things that you're saying? How might you challenge the assumptions that, that you are making as a game designer that are again rooted in your biases in your in your history in your your prior knowledge a lot of that i i think comes down to like one major thing you can do at least easy thing is get rid of the jargon in your game and really realize what is jargon so for example something called a skill check that might like you might understand that right away if you're listening to this podcast. I know what a skill check is. Do does anyone else? I I had to explain what Dungeons and Dragons was to someone. I told someone, "Ah, yeah, I make games. I make tabletop role playing games." And they said, "What's that?" I said, "Well, what do you know about them already?" And they started with, "Well, explain to me what a tabletop role playing game is." And I said, "It's like D and D." And they said, "D and D." And I was like, "Oh crap." Dungeons and Dragons? And they said, uh, and I said, like in Stranger Things. And then they said, oh, <laughs> even the basic stuff, you cannot, you cannot take for granted that they're gonna know what that means. They, I mean, I know what a skill is. Every like you know what the English word skill is if you speak English, but what does it mean in the context of the game? Making sure that you're taking the time to explain it and just doing that throughout including within that what is an RPG section. Like you might even say there are going to be like times, like here are some basic terms and things will be explained as they go. If there's not a clear explanation, read another, read the next paragraph and hopefully that will clarify. Like you might even want to explain it like that. Treat this rule like a textbook. Treat, treat this book like a textbook. Treat this uh, book like a, like a guide. Feel free to riff on the rules if that's one of the things you want to do, but you should explain it. 
including the presumptions and attitudes and reasons. I hope that made sense. <laughs> That's, it's, it's so complicated. It's so complex. It, it, it did. Um, at least to me, I kind of got what you're going for. I mean, I, I use the phrase, but more on that later in my mm-hmm. game books um, fairly regularly. It, it pops up multiple times in, in many of the books that I've written, which is, you know, like I'll introduce the concept of, okay, but you're going to have to roll dice, but more on that later. That's like, great. That's the confidence booster. Introduce the idea that there's going to be dice rolling and we'll get into the details of it down the road. Cause right now I'm describing, I'm giving you the broad overview. And then I start to drill down a little further and you get into this or that. And, um, you know, it becomes, you know, in some ways, one of the things that I think we all run into is, well, what's the proper order (laughs) to present the information in that's going to um, convey all that information, convey everything about the game. And there have been, you know, if you, if you go looking through the history of, of RPGs, you will see vastly different approaches. There'll be approaches where like, they come right out of the gate, they give you a setup and they're like, boom, we're into the rules and character creation. Um, and then there's like, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, like 1990s World of Darkness stuff where you spend half the book learning, just kind of reading prose and reading stories and poetry and missives and letters about this world and getting completely immersed in everything. And you're slowly learning, learning like what all the clan, the vampire clans are and what the Sabbat is and what the Camarilla is and all these things. And then you get, you know, part, you know, a big chunk into the book before it's like, okay, and now this is how you make a character. Because the game presented the information. That's the experience they wanted you to have was to get immersed in the world first. There's no, there's probably no truly wrong way to do it. It's just what's right for your game and the experience you're trying to generate. Keeping in mind, of course, that players will skip around to different sections of the rule book. But even though they will do that, and you you can't predict who will or won't, there, there will be some people that will just like, they feel like it's a book. You read it from the beginning to the end. And so ideally your beginning to end structure and how you build everything in there will tell the story of, of how you play the game. Um, even if people are going to jump around. I mean, I'm from the, the school of thought that says RPGs are a conversation and that in fact, they're, they're a, a way, a way of structuring conversation and that they are indeed a conversation because designers are in, in conversation with each other with the designs and then you know basically the system is just there to regulate how you talk and uh that that then said you know asks what what sort of conversation you're going to have there's another though side of it for me which is you know i'm frequently submitting role-playing games to festival which is an rpg competition in denmark and they uh require that you and already here and now in august submit a synopsis of what will be in the game right and that of course is much more intense than the what is the role-playing game factor and oftentimes things will sort of get through because the synopsis is so good right and the design seems really coherent etc and then it isn't until like the precise moment where, where you as a game master are sitting down and you're asking players to do stuff and you're like oh this totally doesn't work and we are now going to flail around with this system for the next four or five hours it's not just other people's systems it's mine as well right we where we, we've all kind of gone even through even through play tests and you then you finally are there ready to run your game that you've you know overthought and synopsized and really organized all the information and then you're and then the rubber hits the road and you're like well crap this 
just does, still doesn't work. There's still still major problems with it, and and so you know, not only are RPGs a conversation, but but like you have to kind of accept the weird imperfections of whatever you wind up producing at the end. It, you'll never make everybody happy, so you have to kind of say, well, this is this is the thing that I've done, and I'm happy to at least present it to you. And now I'm going to hack it before your eyes the hack my own thing i wrote and i wrote these <laughs> procedures to do a thing and i hate it and i'm gonna do this other thing <laughs> in, this, in this moment right now I, I i rebel as the game master against the designer also me uh and, and, and I'll, I'll try to make this not weird so you're saying that gaming is solipsism exactly yeah i i, I really you know I mean, and, and and this is a sort of permission to dream, but also the permission to to think, you know, all these structures are malleable and, and very dependent on the social situation you find yourself in. And and that reading an RPG is a form of play, but that it's a different form than running it, which which is going to require you to I think it's a whole other skill and it's, it takes that skill, especially from teaching into a, a new um context oh yeah i'm i'm a i'm an education evangelist so and if you have the opportunity to ever take a continuing education credit or to teach a class uh, it will inform a lot of your gming and game design decisions quite a bit uh just it's also a really good way to train yourself how to like explain brand new concepts that to people who will tune out in three seconds so that's always a good skill I, I think that really like syn synopsizing your game, that's such a good practice for you. Maybe have, find your non-gamer friend and explain your game to them. If, if like buy them a coffee, buy them, buy them a dinner or something. So they're not, you're not just like dumping on them, but uh, that might be a good strategy to see if it makes sense for someone who's never played games before never played a role-playing game before. But I wanted to comment on one thing that you said, Evan, like it has flaws, but, I, but here it is. It reminded me of my first car, which had a lot of flaws, but it still drove and I still really liked it. And a first time player might not even notice those flaws. It's the first game they're playing and they're If you write a game that inspires their imagination and makes them feel special and good, they're not going to care or even notice. They're not going to notice the horrible engine noise. They're going to keep playing. To, to, to write on that, that most of the, the bad games I've been in are ones in which the consent or contract fell apart, not the system, right? It, it was about something between the players and the game master or among the players that didn't work and that the system was just an expression of that. So I, I really don't think that, that anyone can create too bad of a system i really i don't think you know i mean i i, I guess this oh, contradicts gosh. a lot of a lot of a lot of advice uh, of advice but you know you, you just you know get your bad games out of you put them out in the world let people try them out why don't you try them out and uh and and then you'll make incremental changes over time you'll grow you'll change but 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 don't dismiss your work uh don't dismiss your your expression I like what you just said there makes me realize that maybe we should have talked a little bit more about how you should be designing for a GM instead. <laughs> if the GM is the one who's introducing the players to the game in the first place and all these games are falling apart because of the social contract within the game and not the system itself, uh, maybe that should be the audience you should really be focused on. But so much of our game texts are so like player oriented rather than here's the person who's running the game oriented. 
I don't know. I'm going to have to reflect on that some more. <laughs> I found myself thinking too, with this topic, with games that, and we've talked about text and subtext before with games that have, have both. And every game has kind of a little bit of both, but some have more than more subtext than others, um, which is, you know, and what I'm getting at is like you say, the game is about this, but after you read through everything or get to a certain point in the reading or you play it, you realize, oh, but the game is really about this other thing, or it is at least at, at the very least equally also about this other thing. And uh, thinking about how you're going to approach that, because in, in if, if you do have like these different layers of what the game is about, you, it, it, I think it's worth looking at how you present that information so that you don't muddy the waters on either of the things or any of the things, or uh, that you don't, uh, you, if, if you spend too much time on one thing and then just have like a little bit of something else, it tells you like that, that tells the the reader something. And, and, and that's not that, not that that's a bad thing um, with, with like, I just was, you know, working on code warriors lately, like you're playing programs in a computer world, the computer's crashing, it's the apocalypse. And that's what the game is about. But really it's about you having lived in a classist society that has now broken down and all the class structures are gone and you can be anything you want to be. But, and, and that's kind of in the subtext of what's writing, but then it's also, it raises the question, well, do these people know, do these computer programs people, do they know that they're, that this is a computer? Do they know that there's a person out there, that there's a user, that somebody installed them, that they came from somewhere else, that somebody created them somewhere else? Is there a God? And I didn't know that necessarily people wanted to answer that question in their game. So what I ended up doing was taking that and a few other items that the game can also be about and put them in there like their own little chapter of like, this is other stuff you might want to explore. And I didn't really reference it too deeply in, in uh, the rest of the game text, you know, is, uh, you know, a discussion of like, well, what's, what's, what's sex and gender like for, for computer programs where there's no physiology that, you know, there's no reproduction, there's no families, there's no children um, in the traditional sense that we think of them. Like, what does that mean to you in the game? Like, that's something that can be explored in the game, but it's not pervasive in the, uh, the most of the text of the game. I put it over in this section where it's like, now we can really kind of drill down and really point this out without any mistakes. Like there's, there's, there's stories to be told here and there's things to be thought about here. In, for for those you know two topics the the god thing and the sex and gender thing and as well as like a few other things that are in that section so you can explore those things and you have to be you know just be thoughtful and mindful of of how much you 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 layer that stuff in there and and whether or not you confuse anybody and whether there's some things that are just like oh this is peripheral we'll make this a secondary or tertiary kind of thing but we'll but we want to have it like in the game in some manner I was thinking of Inamine, actually, the the Angels and Demons RPG from the 90s, where you're going to find yourself in sort of a Good Omens, Neil Gaiman, uh, Angels and Demons intrigue situation. And they set you up for that, right? Here are the different factions, and the factions are associated with different, like, powers and different, like, worldviews or whatever. But the moment you step into Angel and Demons fiction, especially if you, you know, are, you have any kind of inquisitive... <laughs> Um, perspective. And this is also leads into first timers because I often was running Inamine in high school for people who were religious, but were not like <laughs> gamers, right? You know, people, people who, who were interested in playing an angel and, and they would take that angel and they would use it to ask big philosophical questions. And, and, and actually, you know, the original game by Croc was a satire, right? Of, of religion itself. And 
you know, there, there was just this really strange triangulation between like satire, very earnest philosophical exploration, and, you know, your your flame wheel power can do X damage, right? And, and, <laughs> right. and, and, and like, that's just how it was. And, and that, uh, the, you know, when, once you sort of welcomed in the subtext, and and gets got just got comfortable with what the weirdness of the game would be worked out just fine you just had to had to abandon the idea that it was just the, this one thing and in looking back at the text i say no 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 it's all there right they they do actually are they are playing around with both like a satirical tongue-in-cheek as well as a very earnest philosophical um, notion of what's going on and then allow allow you to integrate the the intrigue elements in, you know, just like good omens. And you know, I think that when when we look look at our designs, if we see that weight there of like, okay, here are the basic procedures that people can follow to play the game, and we've incentivized the, the player behavior. But we've also left you know the fruitful void or the ambiguity there for them to go there if they want to, and we'll, we'll welcome that. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then we and then we won't uh, be shy when they say, okay, now now I I'm, I shoot him in the head. What is, how do I do that? And we have to walk through <laughs> those procedures. That's just the magic and messiness of the tabletop RPG form. I, I think that, that you have to not like don't be afraid to add that subtext in your game as a designer or also as a GM for new players. Like just because you're you're trying to on-ramp them into the game, but ideally the destination is the same place. And in my opinion, at least, being able to explore those types of topics that you might not actually be able to explore in your real life identity me speaking especially as like a, a a queer person who really discovered a lot of themselves in games really important and 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 thinking oh this is already complex enough i don't need to add on this layer is doing a real disservice to your game it's going to take away that the element that will make it really fun and really interesting and something to worth worth going back to in the future i, I yeah i love that and pragmatically, as a game designer, if you're hoping to get more people to play your game, having those layers in there and communicating them in the text and thinking about how you're communicating them um, and making sure that you're paying, you know, you're, you're paying all of that out in the, you know, in, in, the, in the, especially early on or once you start to kind of get past, you know, like maybe you set up the basics and then you start to sprinkle um, some of the other subtext in there. That's going to intrigue. You'll find yourself in writing a game that intrigues more and different types of people. And that will get, you know, just from a, a satisfaction base of like, oh, more people are playing my game because different people are finding different things to enjoy about it. But then it's also going to help you um, because you will find people in this day and age when people can communicate with you as an indie designer. A lot of times you might find yourself, you know, on Twitter and Discord and talking with the fans of your work. You find yourself like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was in there that I, I was doing this thing and I guess yeah. it's kind of there like I didn't realize I'm I hate to keep going back to code words but it's so on my mind because I've been finishing it up but somebody pointed out to me about a month ago when the game was basically done and play tested that there's a lot of body horror in there <laughs> like I yeah. didn't really I was like oh yeah there is there's like stuff where your your characters are getting changed you didn't realize that when you had like a weird little <laughs> egg sacs bursting from one of the new NPCs that we had just met Craig, you didn't realize a little bit of body horror. I didn't. I didn't. 
no there was and there's other stuff too yeah there's like there's there's a few different things and like i wasn't i wasn't like somebody said you know, like i was expecting this kind of actiony apocalypse story and i didn't realize i was getting body horror um and admittedly it's a part of the game but you know it's like somebody's gonna some you know somebody's gonna play the game and they're gonna kind of find that to be intriguing you know somebody's gonna find you know they're gonna find all sorts of things different people are gonna find different things intriguing so communicate that stuff and think about it and be purposeful in how you're presenting that so that you're presenting it clearly and honestly. Evan, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today about new gamers. And I, I I'm just remember being a new gamer myself and thinking about when I had a friend ask, hey, do you role play? And me thinking like, oh, like Neopets? Yes, I do. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then they were telling me to roll dice and stuff. But luckily, that all, that all worked out. Uh, Evan, I really liked like your insights today. I appreciate it. And I want to know where our audience can find you on the internet and elsewhere. You can find me on Twitter at Guy in Black Hat. I also own GuyInTheBlackHat.com, uh, which has a the in it, unlike my Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> I am, you can also Google me and find that I'm a professor at University of Cincinnati and look at my not updated web page, but that other, otherwise uh, really excited that, that we have our, our forthcoming game, Diamond 20 coming out uh, probably the end of the year. And, um, and so look for that too. Thank you again for joining us. Yes, thank you. You can find me on Twitter at, at Joska. And my website at wannabegames.com, which is where you can also, I think I have it up now. I just was revamping my website and I haven't touched it since Gen Con. But you can find also my games under wannabe games at DriveThruRPG or Itch. And we have a backer kit live for pre-orders for The Means of Magic at tmom.backerkit.com. I think that's right. And that's where you can, you can either fill out your survey if you already did the Kickstarter or maybe you missed the maybe you missed the crowdfunding campaign. You wanna you wanna get in on this and the game will be out by the end of September. And I'm very nervous about it. And I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. My website is nerdburgergames.com. Games are all at drive through RPG. The Patreon Patreon.com slash Craig is ongoing, um, leading us up to uh, Capers Cyber. This past reward, just a couple days ago, I sent out uh, to the patrons the first two completed pieces of artwork for Capers Cyber. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> is Beth killing it? Beth Varney is back doing all the artwork for this, just as she has done for every single Capers product so far. So you're going to see a very cohesive world built on uh, my words, but also very much on Beth's artwork. And uh, I'm going to, I'll say this, the people who have seen all of this know what I'm talking about. I will say this, there are Easter eggs. Like if you have been a longtime fan of Capers, there are things in Capers Cyber, not just world building things but other things that you will be like oh yeah that i see where you got that and some of it's the artwork that's very exciting thank you to our opening and closing theme song which is avil by steph sacks which was licensed under creative commons thank you steph sacks thank you again evan and thank all of you for listening and we'll see you back here next time bye 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 bye